Thank you, John Watson. Much appreciated. Thanks for your leadership in that ministry. And thanks to everyone who was involved leading life groups or care ministries. I, uh, man, I want to give a big round of applause for all of our life group leaders right now, all of our care ministry leaders. Would you please? I mean, these are folks, these are folks with about 50 life groups, and each of those people are like pastors to 10 other people. I mean, they're really giving it up for them in order to help people find uh, community, which is the context for, for life change. And if you don't yet have a life group, as John has already noted, you can go through these doors immediately after service and find out more about uh, life groups and those wonderful care ministries. So, so grateful. Do you know how good we have it here to have these kinds of care ministries for people that have gone through the pain of divorce or the grief of loss of a loved one or through some kind of addiction or the pain of being a single parent. I, I mean, it, we are just so fortunate at this church to have these kinds of ministries that touch people right where they are. And that's what we want to do here at Carney Free is touch people where they are and point them more and more toward Christ. My name's Adrian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Carney Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after service. Uh, I'd like to uh, take just a moment and... Uh, remember 9-11 here today. We're not going to speak on that topic, but I, I do think it's important here on the 15th anniversary that we take a moment to remember well what happened in our country 15 years ago and take a moment to pray. I was talking to a few people in between the service, and uh, we were asking each other, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Do you? I certainly do. It's just seared in my mind, and it'll never go away, and it was a a fateful and uh, terribly painful day for our nation as almost 3,000 people died. And I think it's wise for us to pause and to give thanks for the great country that we have, but also to pray for those who continue to grieve there and uh, to pray for an advancement of liberty and justice for all people, pray for our nation during a time when things don't feel real unified these days. So would you join me in praying for these folks and giving thanks uh, for this great nation that we get to be a part of. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful country. We thank you, Lord, that you have determined the times and the places where we would live, that perhaps we would reach out for you and find you, though you're not far from any one of us. And you have determined that we would live here to make a difference here. And we're grateful to be here in the United States. We recognize that our nation is far from perfect because it's made of people who are far from perfect, but we are blessed, and we have been so blessed. Father, we pray this morning for those who serve our nation. We pray for those serving abroad in a number of different countries right now and those who serve at home. We continue to pray for our first responders those who experienced tremendous trauma 15 years ago, and those who are seeking to protect our communities today. Father, we are mindful this morning of the thousands and thousands of men and women and boys and girls who lost mothers and fathers and sons and daughters, brothers and sisters and husbands and wives, on September 11th, 2001. Many of them still grieve. And we pray that you would be their hope. 
We ask for an outpouring of support to them today, that you will grant them hope where they are. We do pray for a renewed commitment in our nation to pursuing liberty and justice for all people, especially the most vulnerable. But we ask that for all people. What a value for us to shoot for. And as our nation seems a bit more divided today than it did 15 years ago, we ask that we might seek to become the kind of people who long to understand others that are different from us, who long to console, long to love, and that we would be a city on a hill for those who are in great need even today. Please help us, Lord, to testify to the character of Christ through our actions and words. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this great nation, for your kindness to us, and for the opportunity to come before you today. It's through Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we pray for all of those who are hurting today. And we say together, amen. Amen. Well, I think it's good to pause and remember that from time to time, as I'm sure that you will this afternoon as well. And I have over the past days, and uh, I have a number of family members who work in the financial district in New York, and they were all deeply affected by that day and still are today. And uh, those people are still out there, so we remain in prayer for them and for those who are seeking to defend our nation and our liberties and our communities as well. Well, this morning, our sermon title is God encourages goof-ups like, like me, and maybe some of you too, okay? God encourages goof-ups. One of the beautiful realities of the person of Jesus that we will see in this wonderful story in Matthew 14 is God is merciful to those who are broken. God is kind to those who are hurting. We have a God who is inviting to the skeptical. We have a God who encourages goof-ups like us. Last week we looked at a beautiful passage in which we saw the transfiguration of Christ. We saw Jesus in all of his holiness, all of his glory, as he was transfigured before the eyes of Peter and James and John. And they saw behind the skin, as it were, Jesus in his full holiness and his great power. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this well-known story in which Jesus is interacting with Peter and his disciples as Peter begins to walk on water and he begins to sink. And uh, together as a church, what we're trying to do in this series is look at the God that Jesus revealed. I love the way Matt just put it up here. He said, he is the, invis- he is the image of the invisible God. He demonstrates for us what God is like. We look at Jesus and then we realize this is what God is like. And what we're doing in this series is through our middle school and our high school ministries on Wednesday night, on Sunday morning downstairs for our kids, and then also in our life groups, we're all studying this together, the God that Jesus revealed. And the hope is that we understand a bit more of the character of God, and as we understand more of the character of God and how trustworthy Jesus is, it makes our faith begin to soar. And as we get more of who he is into us, 
by applying it during the week and talking about it a couple times during the week, both on Sunday morning and some other setting, then we realize that these things can come into us and we can be changed into becoming the kind of people that are characterized by generosity and forgiveness and love and hope and peace and all of those attributes which we so desperately want but we find so difficult to experience. They can be ours as we get to know more personally the God that Jesus revealed. So in our text this morning from Matthew 14, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He's with his disciples, and they just multiplied a few fish and a few loaves to feed over 5,000 people. And what is not shared in that story was, of course, when Jesus was with people, he touched them. He cared for them. He shepherded them. He prayed for them. I imagine he healed many people that day. He probably heard many very difficult stories from people that day. And so understandably, after touching probably hundreds of people in a single day, he is exhausted, which is quite a statement in its own right that the Son of God gets tired. But yes, the Son of God, God in flesh, got tired. I've heard from counselor friends that they generally have the emotional capacity to work with four or five clients per day. Here's Jesus working with hundreds in a single day, and so understandably, he's tired. And what we're going to see in this scene is he does what he so oftentimes does. He ministers to people, and then he goes away to be alone with his Father in heaven. And in this case, he goes up to a hillside, and uh, he needs to get refreshed. He needs to sleep. But in addition to that, he just goes away to a hillside to be alone with his, prayer, his Father, to pray, to be in fellowship with his Father who was always near. So we pick up the story there in Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up and on the mountain by himself, he went up to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by the But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night in the Roman Roman telling of time is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So between 3 and 6 a.m., again, he's been praying all this time. And after a night of prayer, he goes to meet his brothers on the sea. He's walking to them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's a beautiful story. It's a very familiar kid's Sunday school story. I'm sure you've heard it many times. And it's a story that gives way to cliches, such as, If you want to walk on water, you've got to... Anyone? Thank you. One person responded, okay? (laughs) 
Okay, this is the time for all of us to respond when I do this, okay? If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Thanks again, pal. Front row. <laughs> you got to get out of the boat. If you want to walk on water, you got to risk for God. You got to do that. And we will get to that. And in addition to that, what we're going to find from this beautiful story is that as we take risks for God, as we choose to step out in faith for God, He will reward our faith, and He will grow us nearer to Him. So we're going to look at a couple ways, though, that we get our faith grown from this story, and doubts tend to shrink out of this story. And then also we'll notice something about the character of God that is so utterly good that we can count on the character of God as we go through so again, Jesus is praying, and his disciples are rowing a boat several miles, likely from Tiberias, and you'll see a map of the Sea of Galilee up on the screen here, but Tiberias is down on the southwest part of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is in the northern region of Israel, and this is where Jesus spent most of his time ministering well with disciples, and he, in fact, got most of his disciples far from this region. They were Galileans, and many of them, well, were fishermen who spent their days fishing in this very sea. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually more of a lake. It's about twice the size of Harlan Reservoir, or about half the size of Lake McConaughey. It's about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and still to this day, it's known for massive storms and great squalls of waves on the boats. It's just full of fishermen any day, though, that you go out there. A couple years ago, Susie and I had the privilege of going to Israel and leading a trip leading a group of people though, that went to Israel together, and we got to go to the Sea of Galilee and get on a boat, and up here next to you, you'll see a, a photograph of that beautiful sea. And we actually got, got to go out on the sea in an old-fashioned, ancient replica of a fishing boat that Jesus and his disciples, similar to what Jesus and his disciples well would have been in. And um, I decided to get out of the boat and walk on water. Okay, that was the one piece of the story we did not replicate. Um, but it was a wonderful experience about being on the boat, and we actually read this story and imagined it from that place. And our guide told us though, that this uh, sea continues to be teeming with all kinds of freshwater fish, and tons and tons of fishermen are on it every day, and these great squalls will come upon the boats. And they could imagine this very storm where huge winds would be swirling, and a great squall would come upon the boat, and all of a sudden... You can imagine now the disciples' stomachs are churning over within them. And if that wasn't scary enough, they look up and they see a ghost. Or what they think is a ghost. And so they say, take cover. Pull out your oars. Pull out your spears just in case we have to defend ourselves against this. And they're scared. They're terrified. And so Jesus says to them in his voice, take courage. As he says so frequently in the gospel, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter, well Peter's that guy that we sometimes love and sometimes loathe. Peter's that guy who speaks before thinking. He's the guy who measures once and cuts twice. He's, uh, he's the guy that says, ready, fire, aim. He's a guy that we kind of loathe in certain ways. He doesn't think through things. But also we love the fact that he is bold. He is courageous. He pays no attention to other men and women in this moment. He doesn't care what they think of him. He has disregard for the fear of man. 
He is not living for the approval of his fellow disciples at this moment. He doesn't care about the life jacket. He just gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus. He's that kind of guy. And in that sense, he conjures a tremendous sense of admiration for me. I want to be bold. I want to be adventurous. I want to be courageous for Christ the way he was. So his eyes are on God for a while, and then he doubts. Again, we could relate. We would as well. And, uh, and then he begins to sink. And again, there's just so much in this story for our story today here in 2016 in Kearney, Nebraska. So let's talk about a couple ways that we can feed our faith and also grow in an understanding of the trustworthy character of God. The first thing we see from the story is that we get to feed our faith by taking risks for God. When we take a risk for God, it frequently feeds our faith. They've just seen Jesus calm the, story, uh, calm the storm uh, in a previous episode back in Matthew chapter 8. And you might remember that, that episode, they likewise are dealing with these storms and they're frantic about in the boat. And uh, what's Jesus doing as they're frantic during the storm? Anyone? He's sleeping. He's chilling out. He's taking a nap. While we're going through the storms of life, he is chilling out in this story. But then he rebukes the wind and the waves, and there is calm again. And so also, in Matthew 14, the story just before this one, he takes these little loaves and fish, and he multiplies it to be enough to feed over 5,000 people from those few small crumbs. And now they're learning that he is able to calm the storms and multiply bread and so also he is able to calm our lives. And I think what the disciples are getting in this moment is that he is actually who he has said that he was. That's why the very last line of this story is, my Lord and my God, they say. They begin worshiping him. They recognize he is not only the creator of the universe, but also he's what he said he was, the sustainer of the universe, of the universe God in flesh. I know there are many people who look at a story like this and they say, how could that ever happen? That could not ever happen, a miracle like that, someone walking on water, someone calming the storms. I get that. I'm kind of skeptical myself. But if you say on the front end, there's no way that could ever happen, you're also saying on the front end that there is no God, and there's no way there could be any God. Because if there is a God, then that God could speak and bring this universe into existence, and that was the very first and the greatest miracle, right? To speak and to bring the universe into existence, to create something from nothing, who can do that? No one can do that. Only God can do that. And so, that great miracle, written in all caps of the original creation, the disciples are now getting a glimpse of these smaller secondary miracles done by the creator and sustainer of the universe who is able to, from time to time, interject in this world and temporarily interrupt the physical laws of nature that he has put into place. And so this is a miracle in small letters that reflects what he did from the very beginning when he created it in the first place. Does that make sense? It's a miracle that will, by very definition, be rare, but God can do that. He can break into the physical laws that he has created from time to time because he created those laws in the first place. So we don't dismiss a story like this, understanding that if we did, we'd be dismissing God altogether. 
So Peter's starting to see it. He starts to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And he takes this gigantic risk out into the unknown, and he says, I trust in you. And in this very act of stepping out in faith, he both blesses the heart of God, and he grows his faith at the same time. This is what happens for us when we risk for God. We grow our faith and we bless the heart of God. Now conversely, doubt can also be strengthened when we choose not to ever risk for God. Or to put it another way, Sunday-only Christianity can be strengthened when we never take risks for God between Monday and Saturday. Some people only go to church on Sunday and then they just go on with life between Monday and Saturday. And what that does is solidify for those people a Sunday-only Christianity as opposed to a transformational Christianity. Think of this. Raise your hand with me if you've ever been on a mission trip of some kind or a service project to the other side of the tracks or uh, to another country, to another place in America. Raise your hand if you've ever done something like that. Did that take some faith for you? It took some faith probably. And my guess is there was probably a moment as you went to the other side of the tracks, you went to the inner city, you went uh, overseas that you felt a little bit scared and you had to pray a little bit harder. But in the process, raise your hand once more, if that actually went to solidify your faith, to grow your faith, would you say that grew your faith? Most of us, the same hands went up again. It is the process of going out into the unknown that frequently grows and solidifies our faith. Or take another example. Imagine you're having a conversation with someone, and as you talk with them, it becomes obvious that this is a person that lacks hope. This is a person with no peace. And you have some peace, you have some hope, and so you'd like to share some of that with them. But you get scared at the thought of sharing it. And so you begin to pray, and you ask God to give you words to say, not that you would push your faith on them. We never push on anyone. But so that I could simply invite them to the hope that I know in Christ. And you might shake a little bit, and you ask God, could could you please give me, God, the strength to share a bit of what you've done in my life? And maybe you even ask that person, can I tell you the difference that Christ has made in my life? You ask for permission. And maybe that person says yes, and you have a little bit of a conversation, and wherever that goes, I guarantee you that process of working through your fears about sharing what you have went to strengthen your faith because it was a step of risk. There was a fear of rejection in that moment. But when we step out anyway, our faith is built up. We feed our faith, and our character is forged as we risk for Christ. Second, we feed our faith by focusing on the complete goodness of God. We feed our faith by focusing on the complete goodness of God. There's this paraphrase of the Bible called the message, and it's not a true word-by-word translation of the ancient Bible, but it is a paraphrase in our contemporary language, and I sometimes use it for my own devotional time because it just helps me understand what was happening in that ancient world in the language that I use today. 
and I, I highly recommend it for your devotions. Maybe not your study, but certainly uh, your devotions. And this is what the message paraphrase has to say from Matthew 14, 28 through 30. It says, Peter was suddenly bold, and he said, Master, if it's really you, call me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come ahead. So jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. But when he looked down at the waves churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerve and he started to sink. That's so brilliant. I mean, that's exactly what happens. When we look at Christ, when we keep our gaze on his good character, we're able to do abundantly beyond what we could do on our own. But when we look away from Christ, we lose our nerve and we begin to sink. And so the takeaway from this for us is, are we looking at Christ? Do we keep our gaze fixed on Christ as the one thing in our lives? The one overarching compelling priority under which all the other priorities find their proper place. He's got to be our one thing. And as we fix our eyes on Him, the other things fall in line. I personally, I'll tell you, I, I haven't seen many people who were strong Christians one day and atheists the next day. They just kind of abandoned their faith. I know this is a small sample size, it's just one person speaking, but I got the microphone, so you got to listen to me. What I've typically seen is people get enamored with stuff. People begin to idolize their gadgets. People get enamored with certain temptations and give themselves to that temptation little bit by little bit, day after day. They start focusing merely on politics or sex, or sports, or fashion, or friends, all of which have their proper place. I'm not saying those don't have their proper place, but they have to find their proper place. And as people focus too much on those, they gently, slowly, but surely drift from God. And then one day they wake up and they say, where's God? Why has he moved from my life? And here's the deal. God hasn't moved. They moved. They shifted their gaze. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, till all of a sudden they had almost no devotional life with Christ. I contrast that with what I heard from Pastor Brian last week, which was this. A number of our guys from Men's Forge have been getting together and uh, keeping each other accountable for that 21-day prayer challenge that we began 21 days ago. And many of us have been seeking to grow our prayer life, seeking to grow our connection with God over the course of 21 days just by devoting 10 or 15 minutes per day toward growing that prayer life and getting to know God a little bit more, adoring Him, confessing our sin, asking for His help in various areas of life, thanking Him for what He's doing. And, and Pastor Brian told me that a number of the guys who have been doing this are seeing tremendous differences in their lives. The result has been a number of answered prayers and guys going to apologize to their wives and choosing to fight for their marriages and seeking to pray with their wives 
and seeking to become more courageous leaders in their homes. And they are intentionally feeding their faith, and it's paying off all over the place. You intentionally feed your faith by focusing for a bit of time each and every day, and then you increase those holy moments with God, and that time in the goodness of God strengthens us. Now, inevitably, we're all going to look down from time to time, aren't we? We're all going to look down. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to be goof-ups. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short of the glory of God. And I need you to notice here what Jesus does when Peter looks down. Look at verse 31. Peter falls down. He doubts. He begins to drown. And it says, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. He didn't tarry for five or six seconds and laugh at him. He immediately reached his hand out and grabbed Peter from the sea. And he said, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me, Peter? After all that I've done, well, why'd you doubt? He does two things in this moment. He loves Peter by immediately reaching out to him in his time of need and lifts him out of the water. He doesn't ask why he did what he's doing. He didn't point his finger at him. He just reached down and helped him in his time of need. He loves him. And then the second thing he does is he corrects him. He challenges him. He coaches him up, as any good coach would do. He uh, instructs him to go a different way. Do you remember what I just did for you, Peter, in multiplying those loaves and fish to feed 5,000? Why did you doubt? Be of strong faith. He challenges him as a good coach would. But here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't shame his disciple. And he doesn't shame you. He doesn't shame me. And he doesn't shame you, well, when you goof up. It would have been really easy for Peter to do what many religious teachers, what many kings and queens have done across the centuries, which is shame people. It would have been really easy for Jesus at this moment to say, look at this guy, disciples, do you notice this guy? What's wrong with them? They get a little kick out of it together. He's always thinking before he's acting. Look at Peter. He doesn't do that. He doesn't shame his beloved disciple. Rather, he encourages him, he lifts him out of the water, and then he challenges him. What I get from this episode is that God lifts up rather than shames goof-ups. He doesn't shame goof-ups. Instead, the Gospels record some 25 shortcomings of the disciples in which they, they blow it in some way, they say something that is... Um, uh, not worthy of repeat. They, uh, they outright sin. They screw up in some way. 25 different occurrences. And in no instance does Jesus shame them. Instead, what he does is encourage and gently instruct and challenge and develop them only for this purpose of building them up to become greater men and women for the kingdom of God. We've already mentioned Peter in these two different episodes, last week and this week. But how about toward the end of Jesus' life, Peter does even worse. I mean, he denies Jesus three times at Jesus' hour of greatest need. And still, still Jesus forgives him and brings him back into ministry. Or you think of the Apostle Thomas. And Thomas has already heard from Jesus many times that he was going to die, be buried, and rise from the grave on the third day. And now the ladies who 
went to the empty tomb, saw that Jesus was resurrected, and they've told Thomas. And a number of the disciples have seen the resurrected Christ, and they told Thomas. And Thomas responds, I don't care what you say. He is so stubborn. He says, I don't care what you say. I am not believing that he rose from the grave unless I stick my finger right where those nail marks were. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't shame Thomas. He says, come here, Thomas. Take a look. Put your finger right here. Put your hand right here. Now stop, stop doubting and believe. Trust in me and believe. Or perhaps my favorite one is that, uh, that woman, that dear woman who was caught in adultery. And you remember that in the Jewish law to commit adultery was a crime punishable by death. And so the religious leaders of the day picked up a bunch of stones to kill her. And Jesus got wind of it all and so he stands in between those stones and this woman's face. And he says, whichever one of you is without sin, you be the first one to cast the stone. He stands in between and they all drop their stones and he turns to her and, and he says, has anyone condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Can anyone shame you? Neither do I shame you. But go and leave your life of sin. You know, as I reflect on shame, I, I get emotional reflecting on it because uh, we all have experiences in our life where we were shamed, right? Like we, we've all had two or three or maybe five or ten or way too many experiences where someone said something that was utterly shaming to you and it sticks with you for decades. And I have a handful of those too. And I, I just want to encourage you here that Jesus convicts and he challenges and sometimes his instruction gives guilt and guilt can be a good thing because when we get guilt, we recognize that we need to change our behavior or make something right. That can be a healthy thing. But what Jesus doesn't do is shame. Shame is an ugly thing. It's a terrible thing that doesn't just say you've done something wrong. It says you are wrong. It doesn't just say you need to be corrected. It says you are incorrect. You are the one that is skewed. You are the problem. I've been reading on shame recently, and neurologists tell us that kids are actually able to develop shame by the age of two. And they can't develop guilt, the feeling of differentiating between what you do and who you are until the age four or five, which just haunts me as a father. And it challenges me. Adrian, do you, do you challenge, do you correct, but do you constantly affirm these little ones and constantly affirm others around you that you love them and you differentiate between behavior and the person. Jesus in no way ever shames his beloved. Sometimes we imagine that God is like this, this nasty king who's kind of floating over the universe looking for someone who might have done something wrong that he might bring down the hammer on him. Or looking for someone who might be smiling and having fun that he might correct it. <laughs> That's not God. That is not God. The picture of God that we get from Jesus is one who builds up the brokenhearted and doesn't condemn. I really pray for, for the young women and the young men in this room that, that you would know if you're in middle school or high school or college that, that Jesus will never condemn you. That Jesus loves you just the way you are. And because he loves you just as you are, 
He will convict. He will challenge. He will build up. And he'll take you to a completely different place, way beyond where you are today. But he will never shame. He will never condemn. And so neither do we. So let me ask you as I close here. What is the stormy sea? What is the swamp that you're in right now that you're kind of flailing about and uh, you really need the Lord's help? You got to know that he would immediately reach his hand in and be with you in that. He would pull you out. And it could be something that's just part of the storms of life, that the storms of life come to all of us, the righteous and the unrighteous alike, and you can't find anyone to blame. It could be that someone else has hurt you, or it could be you've done something really bad, you've done something really stupid. It could be that you have um, gone through a terrible experience, you're divorced, and you feel like a leftover to someone. Any of those different scenarios are probably uh, found here in this room. And so what do you do in that place? The very first and most important thing, though, that you do is you look up to Christ. You set your gaze on Christ for a few moments every single day, and then you are encouraged as you set your gaze on Christ that God is not done with you. Be encouraged that no matter how much you have failed, no matter how much other people have failed you, God is not done with you. And as you turn to Christ, he will lift you out of the water. There might be new instruction, there might be new lifestyles though, that need to emerge, but it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Romans 2 says. It's not his harshness, it's not his anger, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so I'm praying that perhaps today there would be some that would turn to the love of God and realize that no matter what goof-ups you've done in the past, you can be forgiven by the cross of Christ. And I'm praying that there might be some today that would know that next week we have baptism and you really haven't identified publicly with the cross of Christ and you would say, I've never taken that public step, that public risk, that public statement of faith for God and I'm going to do so next Sunday. And perhaps we'd have... Uh, too many baptisms next Sunday that I can't even preach. I would love that. I would love that. Because there are people, they're saying, I'm going to be identified with Christ. And there might be others that take a step of faith out today and they say, I'm going to get into a life group. And I know that will cause me to be vulnerable. But I can't do it alone. I cannot do it alone. I need to pursue Christ with other people. And we'd be happy to help you today. You came to just the right place on Life Group Sunday. And for all of us, whatever statement of faith we need to make, whatever step of faith we need to make, I also get this from Matthew 14. We are to encourage others. God's given us a wonderful ministry of encouragement, and we need to encourage others that God is not done with them either. There are people around us in this room that are withering like raisins on the vine because they so need encouragement from someone who would point them to the love of Christ. Who is it that you know that is needy for encouragement today? Who is it that you know that is flailing around? Go out of your way to encourage them. Don't focus first and foremost on why they are in the water. Just pick them up. Focusing on why they're there doesn't help while they're there. Pick them up out of the water and help them. And then point them to the loving Christ. Spur on. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10 says. Let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, how we might stir each other up toward more love and more good deeds, how we might 
actively provoke each other by pointing each other to the love of Christ who will in no way ever shame his beloved. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, how we thank you that you do not shame your beloved children. We thank you that you just picked Peter up when he was flailing around in the water. And what a portrait this is for us, that you would pick us up. As many of us are in a really tough place right now, and we need to be picked up by you, Lord Jesus. So I pray for my friends in this room today who hear a story like this of a man who's in the storms of life, and they'd say, that's my story. And we're looking to you together right now, Lord Jesus, asking for you to pick us up. In the midst of whatever storms we're going through, would you pick us up, get us back in the boat. And for others, Lord, we're just uh, going on with life as usual, and we're not taking any risks. And so, Father, we pray that the example of Peter would be profound for us, that we would get out of the boat and risk for God and risk for others and risk for the advance of your kingdom. So Father, would you give us faith to get into life groups, to commit ourselves to Christ, the Son of the living God who gave it all for us? Would you give us faith to begin pursuing someone who's hurting? Would you give us faith to pursue you just a little bit more this week? We love you, Lord. We'll be careful to give you all the credit, all the glory, all the honor goes to Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.